invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to Philippians 3. Heavenly citizens. Finishing the third chapter of Philippians, it's been a journey. It's been a, it's a great chapter of Scripture. It's an easy one to preach because it's so rich and a fantastic one to preach. I've never been able to preach through it in the thoroughness that I have this time, and it's been a true joy. Over these past several months, we've learned and been reminded of any number of important truths from Philippians. Philippians 2 and 3 have truly been stretching. They've truly been deep, rich, full of truth. We've been called to each esteem other better than ourselves. We've been called to bear the mind of Christ and so bear one another's burdens. We've been called to seek unto the unity that is found in the Spirit as a church. We've been called just a couple of weeks ago to count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then last week we were called to press toward the mark. Not last week, the week before. Last time we were in Philippians. Press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I feel a measure of confidence in saying that there's not a person among us who has not been stretched or challenged by Paul's exhortations unto unity and unto the mind of Christ within the scope of this letter. And that because what Paul has presented is a very heavenly perspective. The things that we have considered are not natural to the human mind or the human condition. We've even talked, especially in the, over the course of chapter 2, about how unnatural it is to have this mind of esteeming others better than myself, of looking not looking every man on his own things, but rather every man on the things of others. That's a very difficult thing to do. These things are antithetical to my own desire, my desire to be right, my desire to keep my rights, to have my way, to keep that which is perceived as my own. We have perhaps even felt that more deeply within this unique time where our government has sought to stretch itself beyond that which we would regard to be theirs into what is ours. If I may put it this way, what Paul has exhorted us unto in these past many chapters is a heavenly mindset whereby we change the context of how we see our lives from living as citizens of this world who love God and changing it to heavenly citizens who are on a journey in a strange and distant land. And Paul has done so specifically because as believers, we are not first citizens of this earth. The moment that we were born again, buried with him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life, we became citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And God's kingdom thus became our first loyalty. And this does not mean that we don't live under human laws. Paul has made that clear, right? Romans makes that clear. We know this. But it does mean that our priorities are directed foremost toward the priorities and desires of our heavenly king not the priorities and desires of this world. And what can make this difficult? 
even more difficult than the natural propensities of the human heart to be drawn toward the things that we can naturally see, toward the things we can naturally feel, toward the things we can naturally perceive with our senses in a more tangible way. What can make this even more difficult is that there are a number of teachers of the Word of God. There are a number of teachers in churches all around this country and all around this world who do not share this heavenly mindset. For any number of reasons, they've chosen to teach or to reflect the nature of Scripture, similar to what we talked about this morning in a sense, in such a way as to seek to release God's people from a compulsion into the heavenly and to exhort them simply unto the practical and pragmatic principles of the earthly. And Paul is going to set up this contrast this evening that at the end of this chapter where Paul has spoken of his personal testimony to count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, For whom I have counted, uh, um, I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. He is going to remind them as he did at the beginning of this chapter that there are those who are teaching a system of religious fealty or a religious devotion that for all of its pomp and circumstance, for all of its exterior trappings, is very worldly rooted, not heavenly rooted. And it's this contrast we contemplate in our time together this evening. We're looking at verses 17 through 21. If you have your Bible, we'll look at verse 17. The Bible says this, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us, for an ensample. Philippians 3 has been a deeply personal chapter for Paul. He has expressed the cultural superiority within which he had lived as a Pharisee in his younger years. As a Pharisee, he lived a, a, a tremendously successful life. The manner in which he excelled in the things of this world, in the religious system of his culture, the zeal with which he performed his duties was second to none. But he says, I yielded it, that I may know Christ. He says, I counted it all but loss. And then he says, forgetting those things which are behind, pressing toward those things which are before, reaching for those things which are before, he pressed toward the mark. He forgot the wasted time and effort which characterized his investment in the things of this life, and he pursued the things of the life that was to come. And now he says in verse 17, you do the same. Follow after me. Join me in this endeavor. Join me in this journey to know Christ. Assume this same mindset. Let this mind be in you. It's in me. Follow me as I follow Christ. Remember that in some ways, at least as I have reflected the text unto you over the course of the last several months, the church in Philippi seemed to be at a crossroads. Now, this is my interpretation, right? It's my interpretation of what we've seen in this passage. You go to most commentators, you go to most commentaries, and they'll tell you that the theme of Philippians is joy, uh, rejoicing. I disagree. I think the theme of Philippians is unity. And so within the perspective that I have presented to you, the church of Philippi was at a crossroads. 
They were a church that was lacking in unity. There was murmurings and disputings among them. They were seeking themselves at the expense of others, and this was making them spiritually ineffective. On top of that, it seems as though there either was or there was a great threat of danger from without. False teachers coming into their midst, specifically Judaizers and legalizers, seeking to use the circumstances at hand to bring them back under the law of Moses, to bring them back into a state of, carna of carnal religion, religion rooted in their accomplishments, religion rooted in their exterior abilities rather than in Christ. And as Paul began the chapter speaking to this, this danger, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, the concision meaning the mutilation, those that cut themselves, speaking of circumcision, in a somewhat derogatory manner. So too will we at the end come back to a warning about false teachers where Paul connects these dogs, these evil workers, this concision, those who are Judaizers, those who are legalizers, those who are seeking to bring the people back under the bondage of physical merit, he will connect that to them having an entirely carnal and earthly perspective. And he will contrast that to the true church of God, whose heavenly perspective is what drives their worship. Follow me, he says. And he doesn't just say, follow me, but he also says this, very importantly. Mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. Paul says, don't just follow me, do follow me, but then find those who do walk in this manner and mark them. That word meaning consider them, take heed to them, point them out. Now take it in a vacuum, this is somewhat of a strange statement. But within the context, there is little doubt that what Paul is speaking of, when he says mark them or consider them or take heed to them is that they would recognize those in their midst who have found a measure of success at counting all things but loss, who live on that plane, mark them, take note of them so that they can become examples, so that they can become leaders, so that they are those who they will elevate to leadership positions in the church. And we're going to see this as we get in verses 18 and 19, that Paul is going to contrast those who walk so as we have, they had Paul for an example, with those who walked in a different manner. Those who walked in a manner that was at enmity with the cross or toward the cross. The word itself, Mark, is only found six times in the New Testament in very different contexts. Quite surprising variety of glosses. If you ever want to do that study, it's an interesting one. But as we continue in verses 18 and 19, Paul is going to contrast this command, as I said, to mark those who walk according to Paul's example with men who walk according to their own flesh, men who mind earthly things. And there is no doubt that the primary emphasis based upon the context of our chapter is upon those legalizers and those Judaizers of verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 3. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. So the warning then is to take special note, probably with an eye specifically toward church leadership and influence, of men who walk by heavenly priorities and men who are 
walk, who are driven by earthly priorities. And while this would seem simple to discern within the context of the church, especially considering how Paul will describe them in just a moment in verses 18 and 19, it is actually not that simple to discern. It's not that easy to know who among us walk according to the flesh and according to the spirit from a simple cursory external template. Let's take a look at verses 18 and 19 and we'll, we'll dig into this a little more. Bible says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Notice the King James translators put this portion in parentheses. Now remember, this is not a, an original feature of the Greek text. This is a translational decision for them to put it in parentheses. There are no parentheses in the Greek text. So this is the King James translators uh, presumably linking verses 17 and verse 20 together. And so seeing verses 18 and 19 is parenthetical. And we'll, when we get to verse 20, you'll see how, how that flows uh, quite nicely and, and, and quite consistently. So as Paul uh, calls upon the church to mark the faithful, he reminds them that there are many within the vicinity of the church, be that as attendees, be that influencers within or without, who do not walk in accordance to this heavenly mindset, but rather they walk in accordance with their flesh. For any number of reasons, they have rationalized the love and the priorities of this world above the love and the priorities of Christ. Paul describes them as enemies of the cross of Christ. That's quite a description. Take special note of the, the uniqueness of this description. Enemies of the cross of Christ does not say that they're enemies of Christianity or enemies of Jesus. They don't necessarily openly spurn Jesus or openly spurn the, Christ, the Christian ethos. They don't openly spurn Christian morality. As a matter of fact, the Judaizers would be quite on board with that. But they're enemies of the cross. The cross. They're enemies of grace. They're enemies of this call that Jesus laid upon his disciples. Take up your cross and follow me. It's the cross that there's enmity with. Not necessarily all those other concepts of Christianity. And I think this is something that we sometimes miss. We see people or hear people and they've got a lot of good to say. And yet, perhaps between, through the discernment of the church, we recognize that these people, some of whom have good things to say, yet they're off in their doctrine. There's a major problem. Maybe they are legalizers of some sort, or maybe they are licentious in some way. Uh, they seek to give the church license to live in, not, not just in the world, but to live of the world. And we, we say, well, their preaching is good here, here, and here, but there's a real problem when they get to there. It's as if they don't connect the dots properly. And we, we hesitate to call them enemies to, to Christianity because they have so many things that they say that have a measure of truth to them. But perhaps we would not be as hesitant if we thought in this manner to say, but they are enemies of the cross. Those in the church, those teachers who encourage or uh, 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 would would 
overlook their people living in licentiousness, living in the world. They may not be enemies to Christianity, but they are enemies to the call to take up your cross and follow. Those legalizers who would seek to bind people to a standard of guilt and condemnation from which Jesus Christ has freed them, they may not be enemies to all of the essence of Christianity, but they may very well be enemies of the cross, that cross upon which our shame was placed on Christ. So that Romans chapter 8, verse 1 can say with boldness, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So Paul says these men, these are men who are enemies of the cross. Those who love this world, who preach that a believer can enjoy all of the, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those things which define the world without any contradiction with the Christian walk. They who in the name of Jesus, in the name of Christianity, with very convincing words and tones, are able to rationalize a rejection of selfless Christian life in the name of Christ himself, who are able to rationalize bringing the world into the church in the name of Christ himself, unless we become wise in our own conceits. We'll, we'll get back to the, the danger of this false teaching narrative in a moment. But lest we become wise in our own conceit, considering ourselves, lest we be tempted. Let's just do a little experiment of our own to remind ourselves how alluring and deceitful it can be to seek unto the cross of Christ while simultaneously denying various elements of it. Chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 was quite a chapter. We were confronted with this truth. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. What a call. What a charge upon our lives. A call unto a very heavenly perspective of living. So lest we be wise in our own conceits to say, these people, how can people not see the danger? How can people not recognize the deceits of these false teachers, of these that are calling unto licentiousness or calling unto legalism, those who are the enemies of the cross of Christ? How can so much of, uh, how can even those who I love and recognize that they're born again believers uh, fall prey to such ideologies? How, how easy has it been for you to take Philippians chapter two and apply it to your life? I was having a good conversation after church this morning. We talked this morning about not reading between the lines, not majoring on the minors. And um, as I was having this conversation with the, with, with the person, they were mentioning this idea of um, keeping the main things the main thing. And we came to the conclusion that the reason why we can be tempted not to is because the main things are kind of the things that take the most work. Those can be the hardest things. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. Forgive as Christ forgave. Be angry and sin not. These are the basics. But these are the things that take the most submission. 
These are the things that require the height, highest of, uh, they're, they're, they're the simplest things. And so what do we do? We go to the more complex ideological things because they're actually the easier ones to accomplish. <laughs> and they're the ones that have the, the most latitude in accomplishment. So how have you done on Philippians chapter two? And if it's been a struggle for you, as it's been a struggle for me, to look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. If it is a struggle for you as it is for me to constantly be seeking unto the mind of Christ and taking upon ourselves this servant attitude, well, then you might understand the allurement of a man who comes and would seek to release the conscience of the hearers from such a perspective and to root rather their thinking into things which they can quite easily accomplish moral standards or expectations which they can quite easily live up to in their own minds. The allurement is, is very real because one of them is a call to simply modify my way of living and then seek unto my own perception of accomplishment. The other way, the other call is to walk in the Spirit. It's to die daily a moment-by-moment moment relationship whereby I am setting myself aside for the one who loved me and gave himself for me. So let's be careful that we don't be wise in our own conceits and look at the world around us and say, why don't they see it? How can they not understand? It is not an easy thing to count all things but loss for Christ, is it? It's a joyful thing. It's a thing that on the other side of it, you look back and say, why did I spend so much of my time not doing that? What was I thinking? It's so much better over here. And yet, that's still not an easy divide to cross, to place it all on the altar. We're all in the midst of these struggles. How easy is it for us to rationalize our own priorities and desires when we're tired, when we're busy, or when we simply want something so badly? How easy might it be then to fall prey to someone who conv can convincingly lift off of our conscience the compulsion to love and serve one another? And this is why it's so important that we mark those among us who are getting victory so that we might look to them for encouragement necessary in order to maintain this mindset. So Paul warns that there are many who don't walk in a manner that is yielded to Christ in all of these ways. Rather, they live for self. They live to pursue their own ends. He describes them as those who are sons of perdition. Their end is destruction. They are unbelievers. Make, no, no, make no, no mistake. They know the things of the Bible, but they are unbelievers. They live for this life. They have no personal knowledge of Christ, though they know all of the things surrounding the concepts of the Word of God. He says their God is their belly. Right? The idea there of the God, your God being your belly is that you are driven by your carnal impulses. The, the concept of fasting is a concept whereby you are, you are posturing before the Lord. And I don't mean posturing in a negative way. You are allowing the, the external elements of your life to follow a posture of your heart that says, God, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. I love you. I am seeking unto you. And I am acknowledging to you through this fast that there are more important things than just food. That the spiritual necessities of 
the spiritual life are of greater necessity than even my daily bread. And so I am yielding my daily bread, that thing which my body craves and needs in order to function. I'm yielding it for the thing that my soul craves and needs more. And that's the spirit of fasting, right? And so when he says my, their God is their belly, the idea is that their true motivation, their true God, their true uh, impulse is their own carnal desires. Now, it's not going to sound that way. We're going to see that in a moment. When you meet these people, that's not, what, that's not what initially jumps out to you, necessarily. But it's true nonetheless. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. They're proud of doing these things which the Bible calls abominable. They, are, they stand firm upon their rationalities and carnalities. They're not ashamed. And finally, he says, they mind earthly things. They're more invested in what they can see with their eyes and feel with their hands and understand within the context of their experiences. Their lived experience overcomes and overrides anything else. They're walking not by faith, They are walking by sight. And while we would be tempted to believe that this is only fitting, a description of a person like this is only fitting for a Romans 1 existence, right? Having known God, they glorified him not as God, but became vain in their own imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, right? They worshiped the creature rather than the creator. So God gave them over to reprobate minds to lusts and unseemliness, who not only do, knowing the judgment of God, who not only do such things, but take pleasure in them that do them. We think of Romans chapter one when we think of the kind of description that Paul gives here. End is destruction. God is their belly. Glory is their shame. Mind earthly things. But here's the problem. Paul's warning a church about this. If somebody who characterizes Romans chapter one came into this church they would not find a place of influence, right? They would, they would not find a place of influence. Well, then, then why would it be that Paul, writing to a New Testament church that has godly believers, he's going to talk next week uh, in, in uh, Philippians chapter 4 about Yodius and Syntyche, these two women that were, were having a problem in the church. But do you know what he calls them? He says, Help these women which labored with me in the gospel with Clement also. These were not fools. These women had labored with Paul in the gospel. Paul knows these women. These women have a measure of maturity about them, no doubt. How is it? Why would it be that Paul would be warning a mature church about this kind of person? Because these kinds of people are in our churches all over the place. They are leaders of the churches all across this nation. And I'm not just talking about churches of the Unitarian Universalist denomination. These men are leaders in some independent fundamental Baptist churches. 
These men are alluring and they are convincing. And we know this. We know this because we have the book of Jude, the epistle of Jude. We know this because we have 2 Peter chapter 2. In Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter. In Jude chapter 1 verse 4, Jude writes this. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude warns that these, there, are, there are these men, notice how he describes them, ordained unto condemnation, ungodly, those who take the grace of God and turn it into lasciviousness. That's the idea of continuing in sin that grace may abound from Romans 6, right? Denying the Lord God and the only Lord Jesus Christ. But they somehow not only got into the church, but they got in without anyone noticing. They got in without anyone noticing. I read the blog of a man. I'm not going to name his name. He's 63 years old. He spent 25 years as an independent fundamental Baptist minister in Texas, Kansas, Michigan. At the end of those 25 years of ministry, he left the pastorate in 2005. And in 2008, he became an avowed atheist. And his blog is filled daily with vitriol against Jesus Christ and against the church. This man was an independent fundamental Baptist minister for 25 years. And now his blog has a very, has, one of his tabs is why I hate Jesus Christ. There are certain men crept in unawares. And this is exactly what Paul is speaking of in Philippians 3. Now, Jude and 2 Peter 2 are very, very similar. So I'm going to jump to 2 Peter for the rest of this description of these false teachers. You can certainly compare Jude and 2 Peter 2 at another time if you'd like. Um, they're... they're almost mirror images one of another. Peter describes them this way. I'm going to skip some verses. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Peter says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. Again, a warning. There will be these people among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious, that word meaning fitted for destruction or destructive, their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. They will, they will cause the entire way of truth to be defamed and demeaned. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Skipping to verse 10 but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Skipping to verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery 
and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, verse 18, for when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought in bondage. Notice particularly that last bit. Peter describes men who promise liberty to their listeners, but they don't have that liberty themselves. They speak of that which they know not. They speak of it as if they are black box reconstructing something that they cannot understand. They read this book like a textbook. Have you ever had one of those teachers? I know some of you said, I've never had any teacher. Have you ever had one of those teachers uh, in college? You could always tell those teachers that had never actually been in the workforce. They taught like they'd read everything in a book, right? They, they had no way to relate what they were teaching to the way that things actually worked in the real world. It was one of the reasons why I stopped after seminary. I wanted to go on. I could have, I, I, I'd, if I was still a student today, I'd have been happy. I love that stuff. But I realized that there's a point where the rubber has to meet the road, where all of the theory that I'm learning needs to become practice if I'm to understand what God is really saying. And there, there, there are these pastors and they teach it because it's in the book, but they don't understand it. They have no means by which to relate themselves to it because they've never experienced it. They don't understand any of what they teach. They've never experienced it. They teach it like they've read it in a book, not like it's actually made, been made real in their lives. They live in bondage to their own flesh and they beguile unstable souls to follow them. Paul warns against these men because they come in and they creep in, because they know what to say and they know what to look like and they have the knowledge down and they have no reference point unto real Christian victory, but they are able to live the part. And their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, and they mind earthly things. And it is for this reason that Paul exhorts the church to mark any man who bears those marks of being a yielded man. To note those men who walk in consistency with the crucified life because these are the men that we need to follow. These are the men that need to become our example, our leaders in the church, regardless of whether, whatever faults or issues they might otherwise have. These are the ones who will protect and preserve the church. These are the ones who will be an anchor for the church in the days of confusion and will lead the church into the mind of Christ, into the unity that we are called unto. And notice finally that Paul, as Paul contemplates the reality of the many who walk according to this fleshly rule, he does so with weeping. Is he weeping for the churches who have been overthrown by these men who have crept in unawares? Or is he weeping for those men themselves? Those men who have chosen the things of this life above the things of the life to come. Maybe it's both. 
But brethren, either way, as we consider this concept, weeping is warranted, isn't it? For the many who walk after the flesh, weeping is warranted. They don't even understand what they're headed into. And most certainly for those believers and those churches who have been deconstructed by following the many who walk after the flesh, we weep for them. In our Sunday morning series, we've been considering the reality of the spiritual battle. And one of the things I mentioned several weeks ago is that in any battle, there are casualties. The casualties of the spiritual battle come from those who have been deceived into rationalizing their own way at the expense of Christ's way. They have chosen the path of self rather than the path of Christ. They have taken, they have been taken in by a church who glosses themselves in the veneer of the heavenly kingdom while living for an earthly kingdom. By a church who has glossed over secular humanism in the words of Christianity. By a church that has glossed over personal priorities in the veneer of God's priorities. And while there are 2 Peter 2 and Jude warn against those who are at the top of that pyramid, who know exactly what they're doing, who have rejected the way of Christ, like Balaam, who, has, who, who went and knowing exactly what God expected of him, sought to turn it all around for his own gain anyway. Those men who operate in that manner, who are fitted for destruction, take many innocent hearts with them. And Paul wept over that. And this church, this Philippian church, to one degree or another, we don't know how much, this church was in danger. Enough so that Paul needed to write to them and to remind them about these dogs, these evil workers, the concision. These who live not by a mind for that which is heavenly, but by a mind for that which is earthly. So Paul writes these things weeping for the deceits which lie at the heart of the matter at hand, at the prospect of a church, this church of Philippi, that might follow false teachers who will confirm them in their murmurings and disputings, rather than call them unto this mind of Christ, who will confirm them in their self-esteem and their self-love. Do what you feel is best, follow your heart, rather than saying, no, 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 no. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. A church that would say, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. How many churches today would truly seek unto that message? Or how many have been duped by the world into this idea, no, you stand for your rights. You hold on to what's yours. You don't let anybody trample over you. How many churches have been duped by the mind of this world 
by the spirit of this age into rejecting the mind of Christ. Paul says, you know what happens when you reject the mind of Christ? You lose all effectiveness for the gospel. That was the warning in chapter one, chapter two. Because we're no longer distinct. We're just a very odd looking group of people in the flow of the world. We're still in the same flow. We just have to give up more time on Sunday. We're still in the same flow. We just have to give more of our money away. But we're still in the same flow. Paul says, don't be a part of that flow. Seek the mind of Christ. And so Paul wrote these things weeping. For the many who might, in the name of emotions or feelings or rationality, earthly rationality, be successful in encouraging this pernicious carnality to affect their ranks. We ought to weep. We ought to weep for the scores of wonderful and effective ministries that have been undermined by carnality and selfishness and false doctrine. We ought to weep for the many who have striven about words to no profit but to the subverting of their own hearts. For those whose faith has been overthrown, we ought to weep. We ought to weep at the number of people who sit underneath the teaching of false teachers. Weep for those churches who have had men creep in unawares and break them down from the inside out. Weep for the many who walk after their own priorities rather than the priorities of Christ, and not in a judgmental way, but we ought to guard ourselves also. Knowing that those churches did not open the, fling open the doors and let Romans 1 people come into their church and take over. But these men crept in unawares. These circumstances are sorrowful, they are devastating, and they have lasting consequences. Many who have walked away from the faith because of the alienation they have felt at the failures of individuals and families and churches. Many discouraged believers who reject the design of God in the church because of men who have failed to lead the church properly. These are the spiritual casualties of the battles that we face. And we should be so very careful that we don't face the same fate through our own negligence, our own ignorance, or our own selfishness. This is the fear of God. This is what it means to live in the fear of God. Not to pretend as though these things could never happen to Legacy Baptist Church. Not to pretend as though these things could never happen to the Wickler family. Not to pretend as though these things could never happen to Pastor Wickler. Because they can. And we must watch and we must pray. So then, who are we? What is our identity? What compels us? We come out of the parenthetical statement in verse 20. Paul says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this comes after this parenthetical, remember, so, so remember our context. Paul says, Be followers of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an ensample. And then he modifies this command, Be followers of me, with two four statements. The first one, for many walk as enemies of the cross. And the second one, for our conversation is in heaven. 
Mark the approved men because there are men who aren't approved, who are dangerous and destructive not only to themselves but to the church, and also because our loyalty is not to the things of this earth but to the things of the world that is to come. We are heavenly citizens. And note this word conversation. This is really interesting. Whenever we talk about the word conversation, and I ask you every time this word comes up, now what is the word, of course, not when I'm preaching, but when we're in a Sunday school setting where you can talk back, uh, I would say, now what does the word conversation mean when we read it in our Bibles? Because when we say the word conversation, I had a good conversation today with so-and-so, what that means is that we were talking to one another. But that's not what the word conversation means in our King James Bibles, does it? The word conversation means our deportment, our manner of living, the very essence of how we present ourselves in life. Let your conversation be as it becometh godliness, right? That's what that word conversation means. It's the word communication. And of course, communication, uh, if the experts are right, is only what, like 12% verbal or 20% verbal? I don't know what the percentage is nowadays. It's probably just pulled out of thin air anyway. But conversation is significantly more than just what we say, right? It's how I stand. It's how I deport myself. It's my posture. It's my facial expressions. It's what I'm doing with my hands. If I'm sharing the gospel with someone like this, that's a pretty closed posture, isn't it? If I'm sharing the gospel with someone like this, that's a very open posture. I'm communicating something by the way that I'm standing, deporting myself, and such. So that's typically how we'd use the word conversation. Now, what's interesting is in that all but three of the times this Greek word is used in the New Testament, it literally means that. It means this idea of communication or deportment, the manner of living. The exceptions are Hebrews 13, verse 5, where the word is translated to be the mode of living, very, very similar word to those other um, 15 times. And then the last two times this word is translated in our King James Bible's conversation, it's actually a very different root word. And both of those times are found in Philippians. Here in Philippians 3.20, and then back in Philippians 1.27. Many of you probably don't remember when we were there because I think that was pre-COVID, so it's been a while. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes this, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And at this time, I emphasize this word, making note of the fact that it's not the normal word for conversation, meaning the manner of my deportment, but literally it was, the, it was a word that spoke of how I live as a citizen, a representative of a state that I am representing my citizenship in a certain manner. It is rooted in the word city, the life of a citizen. In other words, if I go abroad and I go to France or I go to England or I go to China or whatever it might be, I conduct myself in a manner that would reflect well upon my country. That's the idea here. So it's not just I'm reflecting well upon uh, about my, my character, but I'm reflecting well upon my origins. And that's the word that's used both times in Philippians. It's a very different word, translated the same in our King James Bible's conversation, but a very different word speaking or emphasizing our citizenship. Christian, deport yourselves in a manner that is consistent with the biblical reality that you are not a citizen of this world, first and foremost, 
You are not a citizen of this country, first and foremost. You are not a citizen of this state, first and foremost. Much to the rather, first and foremost, you are a citizen of the heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. You represent Christ, first and foremost. And if that is your home, if heaven is your home, then, as Paul says here, live like it. And to whatever degree we aspire to live like it, we should mark those who do. So we live as heavenly citizens today. For our conversation, literally our citizenship, is in heaven. We're strangers and pilgrims upon this earth. And we do so in hope. See, because remember, we aspire to live in this heavenly way. We seek unto it with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our might. We press toward that mark. We aren't perfect, right? Paul said, not as though I've already attained, neither we're already perfect. But I seek after, if that I may apprehend that for which I, am also, I also am apprehended of God. We fail, we falter, we are deceived, we become frustrated, but we live with our loyalties to the heavenly home. Why? Well, let's finish the context. He says, for our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the, Savior, uh, for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working, whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. See, because there's coming a day when our king, the leader of our country and our city, whose builder and maker is God, will come for us. We'll see our Savior. And he will be the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will take away these weak and these frail bodies that are plagued by sin and by shame. And he'll change everything. And we'll have a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. And we'll be fitted fully for our heavenly citizenship. And we'll be free from the shame and the pain and the failure and the frustration and the weakness and the death and the fill in the blank. So we press toward the mark today. We guard our church today. We set aside ourselves and we elevate one another today. We mark those who live by this manner today to maintain these things today. And we will falter and we will fail and we will have bad days and we will get tired and we will get frustrated. But one day all of that will change. So we press toward the mark we live as citizens of that heavenly country knowing that we will one day receive all that has been promised to us. So keep pressing. Count those things but lost. Take upon yourself the mind of Christ. Live for your home until the day when our Lord will subdue all things unto himself. And on that day, as we, as we sing, that song that we sing, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And God forbid that we would let our guard down and allow those to creep into our midst or assimilate into ourselves a philosophy of thinking, of spirituality, or of ministry that would strip from us the distinctives of our heavenly citizenship and place us back under the thinking, the spirit of this age. We need to guard ourselves, Christian. 
because the battle is ever raging. Our enemy would love nothing more than our destruction, individually, families, corporately as a church. He's real. He is the prince of the power of the air. He has authority in this world, but he has no authority over God's children because this isn't our home. He's the God of this world, but we are not citizens of this world. Our conversation is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we're waiting for our king to return. And he's called for us to occupy till he come. He's called for us to be ready. So don't let your guard down. Don't leave the gates wide open. Live for that world. Set aside the philosophies of this world, the philosophy that insists you deserve stuff, the philosophy that insists you need stuff, the philosophy that insists that you are your own first priority, the philosophy that would cause you to set your brethren aside for you rather than to set yourself aside for your brethren, the philosophy that would seek to hold to your rights at the expense of the body of Christ and assume the mind of Christ Assume this determination to count all things but loss that you might know the one who is our Savior, the one for whom we wait. And one day the clouds will part and our Lord will come for us. He will save us. He will reward us. We will see him face to face. That's the day we live for. That's the day we live today for. That is the filter through which we prioritize the things of this life. That is why we live. Our conversation is in heaven. And that is why we guard ourselves against those who might creep in unawares. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.